Hello, and thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast. This week, Trap One is invading Earth, 2150 AD, and we are meddling with time, and we are many, many other Season 2 continuity puns that I did not have the time to write out. Joining me this week to discuss the Season 2 Blu-ray collection is my ace panel. I am Jason. I'm Denise. I'm Keith. And I'm Sai. If you are listening to this episode, you will realize that the latest Blu-ray release was John Pertwee's Series 9. This disc came out about three months ago. It was surprisingly hard to get together a panel of hearty folks to talk about William Hartnell. But we are all here. And even though some of us have already started on John Pertwee and the Curse of Peladon and other goodies like the mutants, we are slightly dipping back in time to talk about season two of William Hartnell. Denise, when did you first see these episodes? And I want to point out that Denise is the hardest working woman in podcasting. But Denise, sitting in your new podcasting cave, when Mm -hmm. did you first get to season two? I think I saw the odd story through the 80s and 90s. But I actually went for seriously collecting the DVDs probably about 10, 11 years ago. So some of them I saw for the first time 10, 11 years ago, thereabouts. Um, So, you know, I probably watched each story at least three or four times in the intervening period. But it's nice to have some remastered, that's for sure. And a version of the Crusaders that you can actually watch, although I would have loved an animation. And Sai, the hardest working man in podcasting, Mr. Trap well, One, Cy, Mr. Yeah, Mr. Hamster, is. Mr. Maximum Power, Mr. Every Other Podcast Under the Sun. Sai, what did you first experience season two? Um, it would have been the early 90s for me, I think. Um, thinking about it, yeah, a sort of mix of BBC Video and UK Gold and BSB um, and some pirate video copies from my my um uh my dealer back in the day um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do remember um seeing the lion very shortly after it was returned by nefarious means which was very cool um a friend turned up one day he just turned up at my flat where i was living at the time and said and he offered me um a lion bar which is a chocolate bar in the uk and said do you want some of this and I said, what, what, what are you on? <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. He said, come upstairs. He said, because I, I lived in a flat above the shop at the time. He said, I've got something to show you. So, um, yeah, and he'd brought around a video of the lion, which was incredible. I think it'd only been back in, uh, just been revealed that he had been, um, been back. So it was about a month or two afterwards. So, yeah, I knew the right people back in the day. You ah, did. Excellent contacts. Yeah. And Keith, bring us home. What was your first experience with season two? The released um, Invasion Earth and Web Planet in quick succession on video. They're nothing for a long time. Then they did uh, the Time Meddler as a repeat on BBC Two shortly after a documentary with a talking anorak. And then <laughs> just bits and bobs as they were released. So I never saw it in actual order for quite a long time. But uh, so for a long time, my entire William Hartnell collection was purely an earthly child, Daleks, invasion of Earth and web planet. And that's where it stopped. 
so we now have on disc all of this at once, but I should briefly give you all my origin story. I think I am unique in that I saw all of these stories, with the exception of the Crusades, at least a decade before anyone else, because we got the Hartnell package in the States in 1985. So I was 11 years old at my very first convention. It was a convention July 27th, 1985 in Manhattan at the now defunct Roosevelt Hotel, which recently closed because of the pandemic. And they screened the movie format of Dalek Invasion of Earth and then Seeds of Death later that day. My father had me go home early, so we only watched Dalek Invasion of Earth. But I saw that pushing 40 years ago now. And then everything from season two had survived with the exception of Crusade. So that all hit the PBS circuit in 1985, 1986. So these are all stories that I saw when I was very, very young and very, very impressionable. With the exception of Crusade, I think Psy has us all beat there. I did not see Crusade until the commercial VHS came out in the U.S., probably in 1999 or 2000, but I don't remember when. And it came with the two surviving episodes, the William Russell narration, and then an audio CD with off-air copies of episodes two and four without narration. So episode four was a bit of a struggle because it is long, long, long sequences without dialogue. So luckily in 1999 on the dial-up internet, I was able to follow along with a primitive online transcript to see what was going on. But nothing quite as profound as the recons that we have on the Blu-ray set now. So let's just talk about each story in turn, since these are all remastered. Uh, many of them have been given new text commentaries. In one case, we have a brand new audio commentary. And we also have not only all the original features ported over from the original DVD run, we have several new features created just for this Blu-ray, which are all worth talking about. Keith, Talk to us about Planet of Giants. It's a story that basically would have been the second story ever, but they put it back and put it back and put it back. Then when they finally made it, they decided they didn't like it and they cut it down an episode. So it should be four. It's now three, but you can watch a reconstruction to make it four again. And I bet nobody's ever watched it to the end. This is what I love about Doctor Who fandom, though. You take a story that was so boring that it was literally cut in half, and the first thing fandom tries to do is recreate what's lost. <laughs> this is what sets Doctor Who fandom apart from everybody else. The chap who does the voice of um, Hartnell, it is astonishing, though. It really does sound like him. And Toby Hado takes up the mantle of playing Forrester, does a pretty good job as well. And I forget the names of the other cast members. Cy, Planet of Giants, one of your favorites? Um, it's one that I enjoyed much more on Blu-ray than I have ever enjoyed before. Huh. So it's always one that I kind of dismiss. And because it was a fairly late one that I got to see, um, I was a bit, um, always a bit underwhelmed by this one. So this was, um, this was a bit of a revelation this time, I think, um, coming to it. And I really enjoyed uh i think the sets are fantastic um that always is sort of astounding ray cusick was really on it with these ones um especially sort of the giant sort of laboratory um implements that they all have to use so yeah i came away with a good feeling about this one this time how about you jason 
I would have seen this in late 85 or early 86, and I was just smitten with it. But again, this is with the uncritical eye of an 11 or 12-year-old. So as I got older, I found the story a lot more flimsy-looking. And when I joined Records Doctor Who and I was trying to conform my opinion to what everybody else thought, this was a popular whipping boy on the internet in the early 90s because – Barbara's behavior in the story is perhaps not as well characterized as Barbara had been in other episodes, but I think I've come around on it full circle again. Uh, I do know that I put Keith to the test, and when the recon came out 10 years ago, the reconstructed episode four, I watched episodes three, and then I watched episode four, and then I watched three and four combined, the original version of episode three. And I was pretty, pretty bored by the end of it. <laughs> this time around, though, I'm back to where I was in 1985 <laughs> or 1986. <laughs> the fact that you have these incredible sets, you've got a great Dudley Simpson score. That cliffhanger with the, with the cat's face is one of my favorite bongers Doctor Who cliffhangers ever. It's one of those cliffhangers you only get in Doctor Who, isn't it? It really is. There's a giant cat looming over the sink. Anywhere else, <laughs> other than maybe um, Land of the Giants, this would not be a moment of jeopardy. But here, it really is. As I said, my dear, it's fortunate for all of us that everything is dead. <laughs> so, Denise, your take on Planet of Giants. You've heard the three of us, but I am curious as to your opinion. <laughs> Okay, well, um, it's got a cat in it, although she's a bit of a bad cat. She looks a bit like my old cat, Paws, so I'll give her some credit for that. Um, It looked like it was fun to do. They talk about the giant sets and the giant matches and things like that, and um, I think uh, the effects are all right. The plot is interesting. You know, they're sort of messing around with dead earthworms and stuff, and... uh, then there's these strange wooden characters with the sort of main full-sized human plot. But, uh, yeah, it's got an interesting message for these days as well. Um, I mean, there are insecticides that, and pesticides that can kill absolutely everything. There are forever chemicals. So it's uh, interesting to watch it in 2023. Yeah, Aaron, as... Um a horticultural librarian. Um, I could drop my work into this one. Um, This is absolutely very much of its time. So we're around the time of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, which was a hugely influential book about how much um, problems DDT, amongst other things, were doing to the countryside and the ecology. So for Doctor Who to be doing this in 1964 is really cutting edge stuff. So and that doesn't always get a lot of credit. There are all these complaints among certain entitled fans that Doctor Who should never have, quote, gone political under Chris Chibnall. Of course, the point is Doctor Who is getting political from the very, very first episode when the Doctor helps Caveman choose between Homo sapiens and Neanderthal Man. But this was you know, almost a proto-John Pertwee story, and that has a very strong message, and it does it in service to a very good um, science fiction plot with the characters directly at risk from the insecticide because they're so small, as in the case of Barbara. The big lesson is, of course, if you're uh, 
going to publish a negative report about somebody, don't tell them you're going away in a boat for the weekend. That's from the School of Convenient Plotting, for sure. And don't mess around with strange seeds. Yes. And tell someone if you're feeling unwell. (laughs) Don't just rub at your hand with a hanky and look worried. It's not going to cut the mustard. They're busy people. (laughs) If you need medical attention, tell a grown-up right away. (laughs) (laughs) See, I've never liked that. I just thought she was being terribly British about it. I didn't realise. That's never occurred to me as a problem until people started talking about it. I thought, well, I thought she was just being uh, very stoic. Well, she was, wasn't she? But uh, I think she was, of course, ashamed that she touched something that she knew she shouldn't have touched. So that was an element <laughs> in it as well, of course. But um, we've all been there, guys. It's <laughs> a great thing about watching an episode that is 59 years old. We're not watching it for the plot anymore. We know what's going to happen. We know Barbara does not actually die. We know that. Uh, the characters are eventually going to be restored to full size. And if you're not watching the reconstructed episode four, the cat never dies. So you don't have to worry about that. But we're watching it now for the performances and for the sets and for the 1964 style innovation. So in that regard, I think Planet of Giants works out pretty well. I'm a little less sure on the brand new bonus feature for the Planet of Giants Blu-ray disc, which is Matthew Sweet in conversation with William Russell. Denise, did you have a chance to watch that? Yes, I did watch it. Um, I thought uh, it was sad in a way because obviously he's a very elderly gentleman now, but um, it is important to get everybody's memories, to get everybody's thoughts um, while you still can. And what's one of the amazing things about the historical records that these Blu-ray extras have become. Um, Yes, it wasn't, for me, it was less interesting than the Maureen O'Brien interview because I didn't really know very much about her at all. But uh, yeah, it was lovely to hear his take on um, Ian and Barbara's relationship and um, everybody seems to have a lot of nice things to say about William Hartnell and that's good because you you sort of get the idea that he was a difficult person, but he was obviously still very lovable in spite of that. Anyone else? It was an interesting watch. It's always sort of difficult when, when people get very old and he is very old and is doing remarkably well to still be with us. Obviously you're going to forget things. I I think this was done a few years back anyway, um, sort of pre COVID, I believe at least. So, so it's a couple of years old and and I'm very glad they did it. And it's not it was never going to be sort of one of the more sort of hard hitting, cover different things from your career, talk about different things. I think this was always going to be a more gentle interview from Matthew Sweet than maybe he would give to anyone else. So from that point of view, I thought there were lots of lovely things in it. His recollections of Jacqueline Hill um were really lovely as well. And that's always nice to hear. I mean, I think maybe this will be, uh, I'm, I'm sure actually this will be his final interview. And, you know, it's not, it's not the, the best interview he's ever given, but it's probably not the worst interview in the world either. So, you know, I, I'm glad they did it. 
I mean, he's been very generous with the fans in the past, hasn't he? There was very little new for him to reveal, I suppose. But uh, as sort of like the end maybe of his career now, it's quite nice for him to uh, for us to witness him looking back on it. Mm-hmm. But apparently he's getting quite um, frail in real life. So I think in terms of his in convention appearance and things like that, they're probably over now. So it's probably as good a record we'll ever have now. He was at Galley 1, Gala 1 in Los Angeles in February 2020, right before the pandemic. But the autograph line was structured so that you didn't get to speak to him. You'd walk on by, he would sign your program, and that was it. At Elihu, this past November 2022, one of the cast members who was there, who had been with him on set for Power of the Doctor, told a story that almost made it seem as if his presence in power of the doctor was elder abuse because he didn't quite know where he was and he spilled his coffee and he needed help just reading out the six words that were scripted. I got a copy of the power of the doctor script at galley one. And when Chris Chibnall was there and he actually had a little bit of a longer line on page, but it was trimmed by a few words just for his uh, six word appearance on screen. When you watch the Matthew Sweet interview versus the 2011 interview from the original Planet of Giants DVD on the same disc, you can see how much he's deteriorated in terms of personality between 2011 and 2018, which I think is when Matthew Sweet recorded. And then, since I was looking at it from the frame of having heard that story about the recording of Power of the Doctor, it occurred to me that most of the answers that he gave to Matthew Sweet were vague and noncommittal. And it was only a couple of times during that whole interview where he appeared to wake up and give a very detailed and vivid answer. So I found it more uncomfortable than anything else, which that may be me bringing my own baggage to this uh, more than the actual interview from what is now five years ago. But uh, I wish that something like this had been done a long time earlier than 2018, put it that way. I don't know who shared that with you, but it's, I hope whoever broke that confidence, people are nicer to them in the future. Because, I mean, when they're sort of like at the end of their careers, I hope people aren't showing revelations about them spilling things. And I don't know want to know who it is, but uh, I'm quite shocked somebody did that, actually. It was meant to be, as told, a heartwarming story because John Bishop was there and he was helping William Russell. And John Bishop is the one who gave him the line. So it was meant to be a heartwarming story about John Bishop. Just in my ears, it didn't come out as very heartwarming. No. I think that's horrible. So, speaking of horrible, mm. Carol Ann Ford, the way she was treated. Did you guys read the BD-ROM <laughs> production notes? We have access now to all these memos, and the production team is so unsentimental about getting rid of Carol Ann Ford in 1964. That was pretty disturbing, too, even though I'm reading documents from authors who are long deceased and are now almost 60 years old. But Dalek Invasion of Earth, I'm not going to say much about it because it is one of the Stone Cold classics. It is... Terry Nation has a reputation for a reason, and I think this story is his reputation. This is probably the best Dalek script that he wrote, not counting Dalek's Master Plan, which was a co-production. I think it's a great story. There's a brand new soundtrack for the Blu-ray um, that's been remastered, and you just, at least me, cannot get through the end without getting misty-eyed over the departure of Carol Ann Ford, even though the circumstances behind her leaving were perhaps not entirely of her choosing. Denise, what did you think of Dalek Invasion of Earth? Well, I do love Dalek Invasion of Earth as a story, but I'm with the people on Behind the Sofa on this one about um, 
her departure. She's a child bride, as Janet Fielding <laughs> says repeatedly. You know, she's 15. She's in school in season one. Season two, she's 16. Let's get her married off to a guy in her 30s. I mean, his 30s. I mean, this isn't Jane Austen, you know. <laughs> It's uh, for me, yeah, it is problematic. And, um, you know, all the way through from she was terrified she would have the same um, fate as Pincho in um, Marco Polo, that she'd be made to marry somebody that she didn't want to marry. And um, I mean, she's known this guy, what, about a week? And yes, he's quite perky and he's got a cunning way with a fish but um <laughs> is that enough to build a life on is it well i mean it's it's pretty grim leaving your granddaughter in a in a world that is absolutely broken and just got over a huge invasion um half the population's been wiped out by a plague at the same time you know it's um yeah it's it's a an interesting decision on the doctor's part Yes. I mean, even if she is a time lady, she's still a very young time lady and she hasn't got the world building skills that Romana, too, has when she goes off to help the Tharrells. It's. um, I mean, was that normal in other TV dramas at the time? I don't know. I mean, child brides, teenage pregnancies, all of that stuff. They were the stuff of gritty plays and dramas at the time. But uh no, it's a happy ending for Carol Ann and the chance for William Hartnell to give one of the most memorable speeches from the early years of Doctor Who. And I have on screen, I hope you all can see it, this is from the camera script on the BD-ROM. This is the actual scripted version of the William Hartnell speech, which varies a little bit from the lines that William Hartnell delivered. Sai, if you're able to read what's on my screen, can you give us a quick dramatic interpretation of the William Hartnell speech as scripted? Okay. Not any longer, Susan. You're still my granddaughter, and you always will be. But now, you're a woman too. I want you to belong somewhere and have roots of your own. With David, you will be able to find those roots and live normally as a woman should do. My dear, believe me, your future is with David and not with a silly old buffer like me. Work hard, both of you. Be gentle with her, David, and show her that life on Earth with love and understanding could be a great adventure. Yes, I'll come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I was not mistaken. And remember, love is the most precious jewel of all. Now I'm all misty-eyed again, damn it. Sorry, that was terrific. <laughs> I think the screen interesting, is better, mm-hmm. actually. This is a much more patronizing version, I want to say, because yes. David is going to make an honest woman out of you, and raising a child and cooking for your husband is as much an adventure as going to uh, Marinus and collecting the keys. But they're not even the same species. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting, because that's... Um, the thing that the Sarah Jane adventures always comes back to that life on earth can be an adventure too. So we're quoting part of the speech. I don't know whether it was unconsciously or not. Um, that was, wasn't used. So yeah, that, that's, that's a nice touch. I'm going to say, was that a rewrite or was that Hartnell just not remembering bits? 
I think it was Hartnell probably just translate. You know, he's he's doing this live to tape over over ninety minutes, so the words may have morphed in his mind. And he was giving it his best efforts. But that's what it should have been. But what you need is a jolly good smack bottom. Come on. I thought the filmed bits looked absolutely amazing. The, uh, the bits in the mines and the bit when they're running around London, that looked astonishing. That's the, one of the few times I thought that's actually worth putting on Blu-ray because the improvement in the quality of it looked, ama- looked absolutely astonishing, I thought. Um, and I have to say that the CGI effects are looking quite dated these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, replacing practical effects that are dated with slightly less dated CGI effects has never been a good look for me. I still watch those, though. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> and on oh, the behind-the-sofas, the mm-hmm. this, this was an eight-person behind-the-sofa group. So you had uh, Tegan and Nissa and Zoe on one panel. You had Ace and Mel in another panel. And then you had Vicky and Stephen and Susan on the third. Carol Ann Ford is still bitter about the way she was treated on the show. So I think it's amazing that she's still so very much a part of fandom and is willing to participate on these discs, even though she still clearly does not feel that she was served very well. Yeah, it's been 60 years. It's probably time you sort of ended that grudge, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's rescue Carol Ann Ford from her bitterness by talking about the rescue. Right. This is the story that for me represented heartache because when I first recorded this on PBS in the mid to late 80s, there was a problem with the tracking on my VCR. So when I recorded this the first time, there was this huge staticky band filling up the bottom third of the screen, and that made the soundtrack almost inaudible. So for me, this was the lost story because if you missed it the first time, it was two and a half years before PBS cycled around to show it again. So this was the one story that I saw one time and then could not watch for the longest time afterwards, whereas the others I watched over and over again. I know there are folks in our Twitter circle who love The Rescue. For me, it's okay. I mean, it's more remarkable for Maureen O'Brien, who was just absolutely stunningly interesting as Vicky. And The Rescue is also the very first story that was made as season two proper because Planet of Giants – and Dalek Invasion of Earth were made in the first production block and were held over. So here you have the Doctor reinventing his characterization. This is the first time you actually hear the TARDIS wheezing and groaning sound as it materializes on screen. So it's almost a second pilot for the show. So I think it's interesting. I don't think it's an all-timer. Keith, what do you think of The Rescue? I remember watching it the first time. Um, it was in a double pack. So had, it was quite expensive. It was came with the Romans in a double pack, so they uh, basically charge you double. And um, the bit where the Doctor sort of like uh, meets the original um, inhabitants and they play the music of the Daleks, I remember finding that quite spellbinding at the time. And I still remember that. I mean, it doesn't have that effect now, but watching it again, I remember being absolutely entranced by that uh, exact moment because I hadn't expected a great deal. It was just going to be like sort of like a murder mystery where there's like sort of uh, one one person who it could possibly be. But then uh, <laughs> I really love that, just that one brief moment. So for me, I always just hold on to that bit and think, yes, it's actually worth it. Was anybody else disappointed, by the way, by the lack of um, behind the sofas for some of the stories? Absolutely yeah. disappointed. I felt really I, short I this was... like that. It tarnished my view of the box set, to be honest. Yeah, this one particularly, I think because it was Maureen O'Brien's first story, I felt this one probably deserved to be on there, um, particularly as we're 
um, she's one of the people commenting that that would have been sort of quite nice and quite a nice handover between her and Carol Ann. So see Carol Ann leave, see Maureen arrive. There was one for this one, but there was also one for um, Planet of the Giants. You think, considering how few stories there were with Carol Ann Ford on this box set, you think they'd have her commenting on that one? My guess. Oh, yes, sorry, there was one on this one, wasn't there? Sorry. There was, and um, Coquillion was one of the cutouts behind the sofa when That's they right. were. <laughs> so. You're right. It's. Yeah, it's been a little while since I watched the set, so sorry well, about that. <laughs> again, we are recording this very late in the uh, release cycle, but I just want to say for logistical purposes, you have the behind-the-sofa cast members wearing the same costumes. And if you look carefully, the levels of water in the glasses in front of them never change <laughs> from behind-the-sofa to behind-the-sofa. I would assume they film these all in one day. So because this is twice as many stories as the previous box sets, which were four or five stories each, they might not have had time to record nine behind the sofas in a single day. That's probably why they didn't do the whole Megilla. I think also that they're not watching the entire story. I think, no, they're watching the most um, entertaining, sort of controversial, interesting points of it. Otherwise, I mean, they wouldn't sit there for that length of time. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think even the biggest fan ever would not do a marathon of all of that in one day, even if they were getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> now, there was also the Matthew Sweet interview with Maureen O'Brien. And I will admit defeat here. As I get older and as I have trouble concentrating and focusing for a long time, I did not make it through all 75 minutes of this. I acknowledge that Maureen O'Brien is an amazing interview, always speaks her mind, always has an interesting, fresh take. I just didn't make it all the way through. Um, How about the rest of you? I watched it this afternoon, actually, because I'd missed it the first time around, um, because I think David was in the room and he has pretty low tolerance threshold for a lot of the extras so if he's in the room when i'm when i'm going through the disc then i have to be take account of the existence of other human beings in my life and uh, so i watched this this afternoon because he's in nebraska <laughs> so, <laughs> That's, um, oh, the things you have to do to to get to watch the season two yeah. box set i mean i i was interested to hear about her family background and you know how her mum refused to have a tv in the house and it was only when she actually started appearing on television that she reluctantly allowed to have one in the house and put it in the coldest room in the house so that yes you can watch tv (laughs) but you won't enjoy it and um i think because i would have loved to have been an actor had had I had the opportunity and to just hear what it is actually like to do that and be that and have have success, but at the same time remain so modest in yourself that you can never admit that you've done a good job. And I think I would have been a lot like that if um, if I'd been brave enough to follow in those footsteps. But yeah, it was fascinating to hear about her career um, and to get an idea of the kind of person that she is and she's quite a stubborn lady I think a bit like my own mum in that respect you know she made her decisions about things and she no way back that's how it is but uh, yeah it was interesting to learn more about her in that way I really liked her honesty as well the fact she's more or less admitted she's sort of engaged fandom to flog her own books <laughs> 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 sort of like uh, 
try and do whitewash it. And it's something about we don't know that much about because she did engage with fandom for such a long time. So that made it more interesting as well. And talk about the power of verb suggestion. I actually ordered one of her books after I finished watching it, (laughs) (laughs) which I didn't bother reading. I probably gave to my mother, but uh, it was uh, (laughs) within the moment I hit the Amazon button and there it went. Do not forget to tune into Doctor Who Literature, a weekly (laughs) podcast hosted by yours truly about the Doctor Who novelizations. (laughs) Many of the stories on this box set have already been covered on Doctor Who Literature. Including <laughs> Dalek Invasion of Earth and the Crusaders. <laughs> That's anchor.fm slash Doctor Who Lit every Sunday morning. Listen in whatever you get your podcasts. You know it makes sense. And whatever you do, keep turning the pages. <laughs> My other note on the rescue is that everybody on the behind the sofa team loved it, with the exception of Janet Fielding. But that's fair because Janet Fielding never seems to love anything. There's a lot more humor in being <laughs> critical than there is in being polite. Yeah, I thought I found quite a lot of the behind the sofas a bit negative on this this whole set, really, and that was a, a bit of a bit of a shame. So, um, yeah, they, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, as we all cover, who could love the web planet? Well, obviously all the people watching it back. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so speaking of negativity on Behind the Sofa, let's talk about the Romans. And This is the reason why I want to do be on the panel for Trap 1 Season 2 Blu-ray. What I love about the Hartnell era is that it is the most diversity of storytelling in the entire run of Doctor Who, and that includes the new series, because you never know where or when you are going to be, past, present, future, this dimension, parallel dimension. This is when Doctor Who realized that not every story needs to be a science fiction story. So you have your historicals, you have your experimental quantum universe uh, thing in the Space Museum. So the Romans is a historical comedy, which comes out very soon after a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. So I think the Romans is brilliant. I think it is superb. And it was disappointing that if I were on the Behind the Sofa team, all eight other panelists seemed to not like the Romans. Keith, you're nodding your head or shaking your head vigorously. Am I wrong to love the Romans? In itself, no. In terms of history, completely. A million years ago, I actually studied Roman history, so I find it very irritating in that respect. So, But you just said parallel uh, dimension. So I always believe that, um, that the Romans takes place in a parallel universe where Nero was incredibly old and everything like that. But uh, yeah, and also, I mean, it's never bothered me, but people have pointed out that a lot of it is based about um, Nero basically trying to force himself onto Barbara, which is possibly not tea time viewing. True, although it does set up a plot point in the web planet, him giving her the golden bracelet. So it's never bothered me previous that, and I don't suppose it will. Um, I just did, but, but I have to say, when I've, I've started another rewatch for um, the 60th anniversary, and I did stall in the middle of the Romans, and I had a big gap before I restarted uh, again. So. Uh, whether that was just me at the time or whether it was the show, not quite sure, but I think it's possibly a bit of both. Denise? I like the Romans. I, I quite look forward to, you know, when I know it's coming up because I know it's going to be fun. I love all the business with the um, with the liar and uh, 
all of the core intrigue. Of course, it is a little bit uncomfortable that Barbara is once again part of the Me Too movement because <laughs> she's getting unwanted, unwanted attention from various blokes again. But um, that seems to be her lot in life. Um, David Whittaker syndrome. <laughs> This is the story where she and Ian uh, canonically consummate their relationship. And in the the books, this is where they decide to get engaged and end up having a son. Yes, people do say that they're wandering around the villa in post-coital bliss, don't they? uh... (laughs) And Sai, how about you? The thing I always take away from this one is how much fun William Hartnell is having in this adventure. (laughs) Uh He He is on absolutely cracking form he is giggling his way through the adventure he's being mischievous and naughty and so so far away from the crotchety old grandfather that we're told the first doctor is he is giggling and he's him and vicky have built this wonderful bond very very quickly where they're both really into having adventures and are enjoying their um, each other's company, and I think that is absolutely superb. And he does fighting. He does. He's he's clever. He is brilliant in this one. I really like his performance. Do you think that's Dennis Spooner though? Because he takes over as script editor, and the Doctor does soften quite a lot in season two. I think yeah. I think that's a lot to do with it. I think um, he sort of humanizes the characters. He sort of, um, sort of even um, sort of mellows Ian and Barbara to some extent as well, I think. Um, and he certainly sort of gives them um, very far more casual dialogue than anyone else had given them sort of up to this time. So, yeah, I think Dennis Spooner has a lot to do with this. And obviously he writes his script, so he's sort of defining what Doctor Who can do. And I think it's fine that they're sort of, a season and a half in and suddenly realize they can do an out and out comedy and it doesn't matter. And it's absolutely fine to push the boundaries in a different way. And it's also William Hartnell is not an AI construct who is rereading program lines. He is an actual actor for whom this is a day job. This is 12 hours a day, five or six days a week for him. You want to play to his strengths. The Romans plays to his strengths a lot more than the sci-fi stories. If you compare his performance in this to a performance in a more tech-heavy, techno-babble-heavy script, this is where he's in his element. This is the performance you want him to give. And maybe that's why I can forgive the story for the faults that Keith so correctly points out. Yes, the chasing around Barbara has not aged very well. Yes, the history is based on our perceptions of Rome rather than anything that actually happened. But when you're watching the four principals have so much fun making the story, and even though he's 42 years of 40 years old, too old for the part, I think Derek Francis is very memorable as Nero, even if this is not the real Nero. So I think that's what makes this story a winner for me, even though there are objectively things that you could criticize about it. My plans, my drawings for the new Rome, you fool, you idiot! A lifetime's work! I'll have you both killed over and over again! Gods! Gods! Now, a very curious thing happens at the end of the Romans. At the end of the Romans, there's a cliffhanger where the TARDIS is being dragged down. But this is a fact. Doctor Who took the next six weeks off, and it did not air anything for the six weeks after the Romans. 
And then we resume Jason with a story Miller. called The Crusade. So the next story we're going to talk about is The Crusade. Well, what? Inside, did I miss something? What's going on? What's the problem? Well, I think you've missed Doctor Who's huge, massive alien epic that is The Web Planet. How well, could just, you? It was, this, it was six weeks of no air. It was just six weeks of airing a test pattern card and nothing <laughs> happened. There was no story there. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I've, I've got the booklet here and it definitely says The Romans, The Web Planet. If the people what watched the test card, 13 million people watched it. <laughs> and you'll notice that the ratings after that started to slide steadily downwards until by season three, you were down to three million viewers. <laughs> well, right, so that's side. season three's fault and not the web planet's fault. Oh, they have fighting words. I love season three. All right, side. All right, since, since I'm being very naughty and being very comical, why don't you uh, anchor the show for the next five minutes and talk us through the I, web planet because I have nothing to say. <laughs> okay, well – the web planet is is a curious beast because there's no other Doctor Who story quite like it. Um, there's no other Doctor Who story that's quite as ineptly made as this one, except maybe the chase which is coming up. And there is a there is a common denominator mm-hmm. between the two. Um, but I absolutely love this story for it just not giving sort of the audience anything it is just full of aliens it is absolutely brilliant for being epic and telling a story in a very different way to normal i love the zabi design i love the design of the monoptera i think the first part of this story is one of the greatest part ones in the history of the show i think it's wonderful with william hartnell going and william russell going around exploring and um the sort of familial um, fun atmosphere on the TARDIS as well. Um, And then they bring in the fantastic actor, Martin Jarvis and dress him up as a giant butterfly and make him fly. And it's, Oh, it's just magnificent. I'm so glad they made it. They might not have pulled it off as brilliantly as, um, as they wanted, but I'm so glad they tried Doctor Who would be lesser without it. I will echo you there. This story improves significantly in episode four once Martin Jarvis shows up because everyone else is reading their lines with very slow cadence and very poetic lilt. When Martin Jarvis shows up, he starts rattling off his lines as if he's performing in the David Mamet play one studio over. So he noticeably perks things up for me. Keith, what about you and the web planet? Where do you uh, land on this? It's much better on VHS. (laughs) (laughs) you can't see the wires on vhs um he has a natural break we have to put the other cassette in um probably better drunk um but the ambition you have to admire the ambition unfortunately ambition doesn't take you through three hours but yeah it's um it's not as boring as historical story (laughs) (laughs) i don't like historical i'd rather have pushing into cameras than history sorry again i think if you take it one episode at a time or even blocks of two it's far better than trying to watch all six in one go and it was very popular. As I say, 13 million people watches consistently. Yeah. If for the first episode, it fell down. You could perhaps understand it, but people did they like it. They kept coming time. back. Yeah. We slag it off now, but at the time, it was popular. 
All right, so that's two against and one vote for the Web Planet. Denise, are you going to even the scales, or are you going to put uh, Keith and myself on the winning team? It's not my favorite story ever, but I don't think there's anything seriously wrong with it. Um, I like a lot of the ideas. I share, you know, Bonnie Langford got quite excited when the Minoptera first took flight. She was because obviously she'd done her share of playing Peter Pan and things like that. So she knows what uh, all of that entails. And um, yeah, it's. There's a lot to like about it. I mean, my first encounter with the story was, of course, the novelization, which holds together very well. And I think um, having the story with the novelization in your head helps a lot because it's a little bit woolly in places. Yes, some of the performances don't really help drive the plot along so much because you're not quite sure what they're trying to do with all of this business, waving their arms around and all of that. But, uh, yeah, it stands up pretty well for its time. Um, there's part of me that wishes it was a missing story that could have a, <laughs> that could have a superb animation in colour with yeah. fantastically realised zombies yeah. and butterflies that actually work. But uh, it is what it is. Um, yeah, and they, think, yeah. they start animating the stories that already exist just to improve them, then <laughs> we'll be in a very privileged position. Yeah, I think the uh, the soundtrack would have given everyone a headache, especially when the poor quality versions of it came out when, when it was missing. So, yeah, uh, I think we had a lucky escape, really, that it still exists. Maybe not, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I have at times in the last 40 years appreciated and enjoyed the web planet. And every few years I swing back and forth. My biggest problem with it is if you watch episode six, all it is is a bunch of actors in butterfly costumes playing catch with the isoptope prop and going, Zarbi, Zarbi, Zarbi. And then the plot runs out eight minutes before the closing credits. So it's, eight minutes of actors standing around a flimsy set speaking in lilting cadences. Now, Smudge has joined me on the recording, and for a minute, she was staring into the monitor screen as if she was reenacting the episode one cliffhanger <laughs> to Planet of Giants or the episode two cliffhanger to the Romans, which is the second cliffhanger of the season to feature a menacing feline growling at the camera. Or she so, wants to give the casting vote on the web planet. <laughs> she wants What's to, her take? to eat those ants and butterflies. <laughs> mm. All right, the, the Crusade. I love the Crusade. I think the book is actually a little bit better because David Whitaker is getting to do the things he could not put on television in 1965. But here you have the reconstruction. You have the Martin Wiggins production notes for all four episodes. And the production notes are my favorite way of watching Doctor Who now. When I watch Classic Who, I always have the production notes on even if I've watched them two or three times before because they're that good. And this is the only episode on the disc that has a new audio commentary. My friend Paul Schoons, who was instrumental in finding this in 1999, takes part in audio along with the other discoverers and Steve Roberts and moderated by Toby Haydoke. So if I could only keep one disc out of this entire set, this is the disc that I would keep forever. I think it's a great story. It's a great reconstruction, even though there's no animation. It's a great presentation. Who else wants to join me in being as nice to the crusade as I was impolite to the web planet? 
Well, I came away from this with a new appreciation for this story. I think having the reconstructions of parts two and four make a huge difference. Um, yeah, it's not one that I'd, I'd, I'd always thought quite highly of it because the performances are really good, especially those ferocious um, arguments between um, Gene Marsh and Julian Glover, which are uh, a season highlight, I think, of this mm. season. That's two great performers giving it their all. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of um, of recons, but the, I was gripped, I think, because the story is so strong that I I followed those with no problem whatsoever this time round. Keith, I don't like historicals. <laughs> 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 it's really boring. It needs a monster. <laughs> Let me ask you this, then. Let me ask you this. You have a three-episode run where you have a comedy historical with great performances – a completely bonkers sci-fi epic that Doctor Who has never tried to do again, and then a Shakespearean tragedy with literal iambic pentameter and an early attempt at portraying both sides in an equally sympathetic light, even if it doesn't quite work because of the makeup choices used on Bernard Kay. Don't you enjoy having three stories in a row that are such polar opposites to one another? Isn't there very little in Doctor Who to compare to three-episode run like this where you go to such extremes back and forth, back and forth? I can admire it. It doesn't mean I enjoy it. The Web Planet, you've got monsters running around all exciting. Well, apart from the last episode. And then <laughs> you've got Cod Shakespeare, and then you're back into space again. Hooray. So I always watch it. I mean, I'm really glad we got the... Uh, uh, the way God intended with the BHS version with a um, bit of linking narration by in Chesterton is incredibly fancy dining room. So you can skip past it quickly and get onto the uh, space museum. Hooray. <laughs> All right. Denise, before I jump through the screen and strangle Keith, help me out here. Denise. <laughs> well, much, much like the web planet. It's a, the crusaders is a story that I knew first from the novelization, which is excellent. And, um, I mean, I had this fantastic religious studies teacher at school. I mean, I'm 100% atheist, but, you know, he did his best. And he, his name was Mr. Trussell, which means threat in Norwegian, but he was actually Welsh. And uh, he'd, served in, um, he'd served in Palestine in World War II, and he always called it Palestine, never Israel. And he, you know, a lot of the his teachings went through that filter of him actually having been there, having spent time in the land. And then when I found the novelization in about 82, 83, then, yeah, I loved it. And it sort of made sense with what I'd been taught. And uh, it's a great story. Um, and, yeah, I love being able to see it. There's also the new documentary for the Blu-ray Looking for David. This is Chris Chapman's contribution to the disc. So it is a Chris Chapman moon balloon style documentary. It is Toby Haydock on the trail of the elusive David Whitaker, story editor for the first production block of the show, Unearthly Through Dalek Invasion of Earth, who came back freelance to write this story. Now, I'm a little bit spoiled in that Simon Gurrier, who was a consultant on the documentary and shows up a couple of times in the documentary, has done even more research 
since this was produced. So he spoke at Gallifrey One back in February, which is only a month ago, and he gave a much more updated version of this documentary because he has uncovered a lot more stuff. So you guys remember seeing the video of David Whitaker marrying June Barry on this disc? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know who was June Barry's maid of honor? And you can see her on the wedding video. Enlightenment. I will save that answer for the end of this bit, but I want to hear from the rest of you on this documentary. So, Keith, even if you didn't enjoy the crusade, do you like these uh, Quest for Truth style documentaries where Toby Haydock is teaching us about a rather obscure Doctor Who figure? I think they're terrific, but I'd like to hear your take. I quite agree. I mean, I'm a geek through and through. I love minutiae, and these are absolutely um, fascinating. I had no idea um, that he was blacklisted if he was. I mean, that's remains slightly debatable. But um, no, I had uh, really, because he was quite an influential person, but about whom we knew very little, really, because he was sort of like um, died long before fandom um, sort of like started interviewing people regularly. So he's always been a bit of an elusive character. So anything like this, which gives us more information about people like that, is uh, I, I just lap up, to be honest. No, I've, uh, I thought it was fascinating. Yes, not just for the person, but also for the times in which they were living and working and how very different it is, we hope, to to these days. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I love the way they slowly uncover the story by finding the people who knew him. And it's always really lovely when they find members of the family who... Um, in this case, it was his um, his uh, nephew who remembers being sort of around him when he was writing about Daleks and and things like that. And I've got the proof copy of one of the annuals and things like that. And I thought that was that's always lovely. And the fact that they could sort of fill in about his personality. It's not necessarily about his work, but what he was like as a person that all I think that always sort of brings him to life all of these people to life so brilliantly and Toby Haydock is the perfect person to go and do these things because he always gets the very best out of the people because he's such a warm and lovely man so it yeah it's a brilliant format and um I wish every set had one of these I love them to bits I like all yeah. the happier ending though they always seem a bit grim by the end <laughs> <laughs> Well, they found, they actually found and they showed us David Whitaker's actual pistol-shaped cigarette lighters, 007 branded. That's a wonderful touch. Mm-hmm. So the answer to the trivia question is June Barry's maid of honor when she married David Whitaker in the summer of 1963 was Alethea Charlton, who was in both oh. Unearthly Child and The Time Meddler, which you can see on this disc. And Simon Gurrier's point at Gallifrey last month, and I'm sure this will come out in the book, most of the guest actors on Doctor Who in seasons one and two were former co-stars of David Whitaker during his acting career. So the belief is that David Whitaker heavily influenced the casting of the show by bringing in people that he'd work with and knew would give a great performance. And it wasn't just Alethea Charlton, but many, many, many others. And I want to point out, apropos of nothing, that this morning – my daughter and I watched, and not for the first time, we watched the Frank Oz-directed 1986 musical Little Shop of Horrors, which mm. even though it is set in New York, mm-hmm. 
and everyone has a Yiddish accent. It is filmed at Pinewood, and it has two season two Doctor Who artists in the cast, who you can also see on this Blu-ray. Can you name John Scott Martin. And? The other one. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody else want to answer the trivia question? I haven't seen it in a while. It is Alan Tilvern, a.k.a. Alan Tilovich, a.k.a. Forrester from Planet of Giants, plays one of the three hobos. He has a very good close-up in the Skid Row song. (laughs) Excellent trivia. That's what we're here for. Mm. And nobody is more trivial than me. (laughs) (laughs) So the Space Museum which I believe came out on the same double VHS in the States as the Crusade. When you watch the two of these back-to-back, there is a slight drop-off in the quality of dialogue between one and the other. Space Museum was a little bit hampered in that Glenn um, – I'm going to get his name wrong. John. The author of Space Museum, Glenn Jones, um, I got tried it wrong. to write it – sorry? <laughs> That's all right. I got it wrong. I was correcting you, and I got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> He wrote it as a comedy, but they were encouraging him to make it more serious. So it doesn't quite tell the story that Glenn Jones wanted to tell. I think watching it back, it's remarkably ambitious, especially part one. And then part two is called The Dimensions of Time, which obviously has greater resonance once 1993 comes along. William Hartnell being interrogated by the prison governor in part two, was one of Doctor Who's laugh-out-loud funniest scenes ever, rivaled perhaps only by William Hartnell sticking out of the Dalek prop in episode one. I told them all I am the master. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't quite work, because there's so much about it that's still enjoyable all these years later. But if I want somebody to disagree with me, I throw it over to Keith. Keith, take it away. <laughs> I love it. It's got Daleks, it's got ray guns. It's, it's got proof that the uh, Time Lords are descended from walruses. It is perfect. Sai, <laughs> <laughs> how about you? Uh, yeah, I think it's great fun. Um, it's a really good story for Vicky, who takes the initiative and takes the load of um, wet uh, Converse-wearing boys and turns them into a revolutionary army and um, outfoxes a computer for the first time in Doctor Who. Uh, she's brilliant in this story, and Maureen O'Brien is having great fun, it seems, doing this one, paired off with um, uh, the wonderful Jeremy Bullock. So, yeah, that's that's good fun. Maureen O'Brien is a wonder and a revelation, and she just never gets enough credit for being as vivacious as she was as Vicky. How about you, Denise? Well, yeah, I mean, for me, I think um, it's an interesting, strong story for Vicky. Absolutely. One of the things that I like about her and I don't understand why people, you know, people playing the characters always have such a low opinion of how they're written. But her character is from far in Earth's future. She can get her head around a lot of technology, even the TARDIS to a certain degree. And so, yeah, she knows how to outsmart the computer and she she does a bloody good job of getting these rather wimpy lads to uh, get their act together at long last. Um, yeah, it's a it's 
not a bad story. It's not the most riveting story on the, on the planet. Once you once the initial mis- once you know the secret of the initial mystery of how are they intangible but walking around without leaving footprints and how did they get in that case and how can they avoid getting in that case it's it's a really interesting idea but the sort of plot around it with the um with the other characters lets it down a little bit Sai, how about you um i the morocks are one of the most boring races in Doctor Who. But that is brilliant. Uh, we've never met a boring race of aliens. And so Doctor Who is still doing something new at this <laughs> point. And still there are, are different things and different ways of looking at the universe. And I love that they're a bureaucratic race who are down on their luck. And these poor guys are sent here to look after this museum and none of them are enjoying it. None of them are happy to be there. <laughs> and they're all weary. And I think that gives it something really different. It's, yeah, it's really, yeah, there's lots of good things to like in the Space Museum. And far more than just part one, which is a really, really great episode. I think the key to the Space Museum is the yawn. It's either in episode three or episode four, where one of the Morak commanders is looking at the camera on, on, on guard duty, and he actually yawns. This is not a blooper. This is an acting or a scripting choice. They are so bored at work that they're yawning on the job half asleep. It is a workplace comedy, which Doctor Who didn't do a lot of. I think that makes it a lot more realistic than you would expect, given that it is a, a wacky science fiction adventure which takes place on a parallel time track. I'm quite fond of it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, how many security guards have you seen sat in front of a screen looking bored? It's absolutely correct. (laughs) I have one in my office who is there guarding an empty waiting room because thanks to the pandemic, hardly anyone ever comes to work anymore. Hi, Dave. So (laughs) the bonus documentary on the Space Museum disc is the Collectibles documentary hosted by Emily Cook. She is the perfect choice because in a world – of Doctor Who fandom, which is largely dominated by middle-aged men, most of us uh, fighting issues with weight. When you have a parade of middle-aged white guys talking about their toy collection, to have Emily Cook host this, I want to adopt her. I want her to be my daughter's sister. I want to watch television with her. She was also sort of Doctor Who's unofficial, I guess, brand manager during the pandemic, leading all of these uh, tweet-alongs and watch-alongs. She is one of the best things to hit Doctor Who since the pandemic. So I am just – I can watch her performance of this over and over again. I think she is the perfect person to walk us through all these old man museums of of aging toys. Who else enjoyed this? I thought this was lovely. I've always been really intrigued by – um, Doctor Who merchandise and things like that, as as my recent house move will will attest, is just <laughs> so much stuff to move. Uh, but I I think sort of in some of my earliest Doctor Who magazines, there were lists of all the toys that were produced in the 60s that I absolutely loved reading about and thinking one day I'd oh I'd love to own a Dalek fluid neutralizer gun or whatever. And so sort of seeing the people who do have all of these and the Dalek play suits and, and things like that, I thought it was lovely and it was so warm hearted and it wasn't taking the mickey out of um the fact that the daleks were in hugely inaccurate it was 
full of love for what was done and that's uh yeah that's a real it was just a really lovely feel good and i just wanted more of it i want to see Mm. i want to see them do the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and all the things that i had as a kid as well to be covered i think that's where i grew a bit of resistance i assumed it was going to be a whole documentary i didn't realize it was going to it was just purely for the 60s so i did feel a bit shortchanged at the end because i thought it was going to be continuing i thought oh is yeah. that it? so that's the only downside for it but uh yeah my god some people have got some stuff haven't they just i think i've got lots of stuff and i've got nothing on these people <laughs> <laughs> and denise what was your take on the documentary assuming I, you had a chance I to look really... at it I really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't have any of this stuff. And David was watching it as well. And he's older than me. So he was a kid in the 60s. And he didn't have any of this stuff either. But I think he would have liked it. Um, Yeah. I mean, we went a bit mad with the uh, merchandise in the David Tennant era, didn't we? Where you could get a Doctor Who absolutely anything at all. And that was a little bit of overkill, but with the Dalek merchandising, and it was also fascinating how it was all licensed. And um, yeah, I I really enjoyed watching it. I do not wish to emulate these people, but you know, I admire them for for their um, devotion and the way that they're looking after this stuff and the pleasure that it brings them. I will confess that one of the items that was shown was a 1960s jigsaw puzzle. And it was a very 60s style illustration of, I think it was either the Daleks or the TARDIS. I immediately paused the disc and I went to eBay on my phone trying to see if I could, I would buy that jigsaw. I would assemble it. I would frame it. I would hang it up, but I could not find that particular jigsaw puzzle on sale anywhere on eBay. So it must be such an extreme collector's item that you have to know one of Emily Cook's interview subjects in order to see it. And I imagine the Dalek soap has long since been used. I don't imagine there's any more surviving Dalek-shaped soap bars from 1965. But if anybody has them, please send it to me. At Are you Novel. saying that the Novel fans in the 60s washed? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh, these would have been for children, so the parents would have washed the children with the Dalek soap bars. Mm-hmm. They're probably long gone. Wouldn't the knobbly bits have been quite painful? (laughs) (laughs) Well, parenting in the 1960s is very different from parenting in the 2020s, I'm here to tell you. You're not wrong. All right, for the chase. The chase is our next story. I am testing a theory on the chase, so I am going to go last. Okay. The chase. Then Cy and then Denise, and then I'll go last. If ever there was something the term guilty pleasure was invented for, it is the chase. It has no plot. It is probably the worst directed Doctor Who story ever. <laughs> and yet I have probably watched it more times than I can possibly remember, whereas I've watched King Lear twice. So it's, uh, <laughs> it, it has Frankenstein's monster. It's got Dracula. It's got monsters. It's got uh, a chap who used to be in a sitcom called Shelley, being, um, dressed in... I always imagine the Iridians to be gold. I don't know why. I, I kind of assume they, they look do. gold, don't they? They look gold. I think in black and white, they're definitely gold. Um, yeah, I shouldn't like it. I should despise it. I don't. I think it's marvellous. It's Yeah, it's just so much fun, isn't it? 
it's the last gasp of Ian and Barbara having having an adventure, being the mum and dad in the TARDIS, and they're I they're, I mean, the two of them are just always a joy to watch, and I think them leaving is one of the the loveliest scenes, and I love that we get to see them back on Earth and see what they do as soon as they get back and it's just that makes it for me i think that is one of the most gorgeous and wonderful things doctor who has ever done and in the 60s where you where people say oh you didn't have the emotional beats you didn't have what they did today but i think that is the equal of um any any other departure i think that is is magnificent and you've got the most ridiculous arch enemies of the Daleks introduced for one story in the Mechanoids, <laughs> which look magnificent, even though they're the most unwieldy, uncommunicative, <laughs> and silly um, races. But there's something about them that is just just wonderful and so Doctor Who. And the fight scene at the end is is really nicely choreographed and nicely shot from Richard Martin because as soon as you put him on film, he's not nearly as inept as he is in the TV <laughs> studio. <laughs> How about when you, Denise? you said one of the Daleks' most unique enemies, I thought you meant BBC Camera 5. Well, yes, well, you do see the cameras fairly often in this story. <laughs> Well, it is a glorious mishmash, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, leaping from here to there. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who didn't like at least one part of it. Um, I'm interested in how that Dalek got up the steps on the Marie Celeste. Not really sure how he managed that at all. Um, I worry about these things. And... um, but, yeah, I love to start with the time-space visualiser and um, Ian getting his groove on and uh, all of that stuff. It's uh, And the funny little things like, you know, Vicky saying she didn't know the Beatles played classical music. And, yeah, but, um, I mean, it's not my favourite. I find the scene on top of the Empire State Building excruciating (laughs) i'm always quite pleased when that's over but uh yeah it's a lovely send-off for them you know that they've realized that they have the chance to they've actually got a functioning time machine so they can actually go home if they want to and they go home i mean absolutely respect their decision i love the little bit at the end where you know the bus fares have gone up and so that's a bit of a surprise and uh they're just happy to be back in London, but what's happened to their apartments or houses and jobs and things in the meanwhile, I guess we'll never know. But yeah, the, yeah. Rest, the missing little um, schoolgirl they were following, yes. Mm. Yeah, that's never been recovered. Yeah, someone on Twitter did something brilliant recently where he wrote a series of um, newspaper articles about the Shoreditch incident where the school teachers have a, a have probably abducted one of their school ch- children and what's the mystery? Who's going to solve this? Where mm. have they been? Where have they gone to? It was really, really nicely done, sort of in the style of 1963-64 um, newspaper reports. Well, in defense of the Empire State Building, I want to say that the Empire State Building tour guide's accent is the most realistic American accent ever done on this show. 
that was wow. the accent that my that my elderly relatives would have had who were born in the states and were alive in the 60s and were still alive for me in the 70s and 80s. You'll notice in the elevator coming up took you seven minutes. You want to uh, go down the short way? It'll take you 20 <laughs> seconds. That is exactly <laughs> what we sound like. I also want to say, and I'm not being facetious. I think the chase is one of Doctor Who's best stories, and I'll tell you why. This is the first time that Doctor Who realizes what it is and creates an episode that leans into Doctor Who's popularity and Dalek mania and its own mythology. Beginning of season one, it is a timid show. It is filmed in a minuscule studio in Lime Grove D. Every serial ends with our characters just managing to escape by the skin of their teeth. By the time you get to the chase, you have embraced comedy, you have embraced scope, you have Abraham Lincoln, you have the Queen, you have Shakespeare, you have the Beatles, you have multiple alien planets, you go to the 19th century, the New York-based sailing ship, you go to the Empire State Building, you go into the future with the Festival of Ghana, you have the Mechanoids, you have the Meyer Beast, you have the jungle creatures on Mechanus. You have that enormous, huge fight between the Daleks and the Mechanoids is unlike anything Doctor Who had tried before. This was Doomsday, which is the RTD 2006 story 40 years early. Instead of the Daleks and the Cybermen, it is the Daleks fighting another enormous race of robots. You have the heartfelt ending with Ian and Barbara leaving, which is probably the best companion departure ever. All right, maybe the ambition exceeded Richard Martin's capacity to plot out camera movements in the studio. <laughs> Never minding that. <laughs> I think this is one of Doctor Who's best stories, even if it is not the best made, because it is Doctor Who going big for the first time. And that's what the new series would do during its two-part season finales. It would go big. So the chase goes everywhere, all of time and space. And there is a reason why the episode subtitle flight through eternity was adapted for a particular podcast that some of us have been on. And by some of us, I think I mean, Cy. <laughs> <laughs> Who else would it be? <laughs> so uh, yeah, for no, me, no. the chase is, I will never hear a bad word said about it because I think it's more than a guilty pleasure. I think it is a very important and a very well-told story. And everyone on screen is having fun, which is always important. Who dares to disagree with me? No, no, man. No, I'm from Alabama. I think it's a tragedy we never got the Peter Cushing version. I think that would have been amazing. Yeah, I think Doctor Who's Great Chase Through Space, as it would probably have been called, would have been a brilliant film. Yeah, it would have been really good fun. Well, I think the Mechanoid City was very well realised, actually. Yes. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And it has a little mechanoid going along it, and that's the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the joy I mean behind the sofa couches when Peter Purvis shows up and all three of the panels recognize Peter Purvis that was a joy to watch yeah and Peter Purvis recognized Peter Purvis <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right I think it's it's good fun and sorry Jason just is talking cats <laughs> <laughs> right, smudge is smudge is direct smudge is blocking me right now anybody looking at me on screen would see smudge but not me yes. it appears that my cat is podcasting in my place but I, it's interesting sort of seeing terry nation sort of with his dalek stories going from the 
small scale, one planet, one city to them invading Earth, to them suddenly becoming the great big outer space um, time traveling baddies for the Doctor as well. So the Daleks evolve through this um, through these first two years as well, which is always really interesting. And there is, of course, the comedy Dalek who stutters as it reads the readouts. That was never tried again, and it's easy to see why. Maybe that bit didn't work. Yeah, you're right there. What do you think, Smudge? <laughs> Smudge is still busy reenacting the Planet of Giants Part 1 cliffhanger. I should have next episode, Dangerous Journey, superimposed over her face. <laughs> All right, so the final story on the disc was not the final story of Season 2 production block. Season 2 production block ends with a five-parter that is Galaxy 4 Plus Mission to the Unknown, which shares two cast members and a director and designer with Galaxy 4. But that was held over to air as part of Season 3, and Galaxy 4 was its own separate blu-ray release which we've already talked about in a previous trap one episode so for us season two ends with the time meddler which is doctor who's first pseudo historical it is the first episode without ian and barbara but because steven and vicky are such an instantly great team you don't really have time to miss them and you have for my money one of the most important if not best cliffhangers doctor who ever did it's a tardis the monks got a tardis I never watched Time Meddler with anything less than a huge smile on my face. And again, I liked it more than most of the Behind the Sofa team did. But I think Peter Butterworth is the perfect foil to William Hartnell. Again, I will not hear a bad word said about Time Meddler. Who else wants to weigh in now that I've thrown down the gauntlet? (laughs) Yeah, it is a lovely, fun story. Um, David and I watched the occasional carry-on film on a Saturday night, and um, we just watched Carry On Screaming the night before I was due to watch The Time Meddler. And so it was like, hey, <laughs> of course, David couldn't identify Peter Butterworth in the lineup. But, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun to see somebody who is such a comic genius and someone who William Harnell obviously enjoys playing against very much. And, um, yeah, there's some excellent humor. What do you think it is? A space helmet for a cow and things like that. All those lovely little lines. And, um, you know, that the Stephen finds a wristwatch on the ground and he's convinced that it's not 1066. But, uh, yeah, and the horror and the concern that Vicky has because um, she thinks the TARDIS has been taken by the tide. Because it's been left at the bottom of the cliff and the tide comes in. And there's so many lovely little moments. The the monk making his bacon and eggs and (laughs) all the rest of it, you know, all these I love the gramophone when it winds down and the Mm. the chanting slows right down and then he speeds it, winds it back up and off it goes again. He's a time lord. Why is he not using an iPod or something like that? He's still using (laughs) (laughs) One of the great things that we have on the Blu-rays is the BD-ROM, where they give you the entire production file for any given story. And what's amazing is that Doctor Who fan, and by Doctor Who fan, I mean many fans, never, ever changes. And for all the chorus of people that were hating on the Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker era, 
it is heartening to go back and read the audience appreciation reports from 1965 and to see that Doctor Who fan, and by fan I mean many fans, was just as ornery and short-sighted. So I am doing one more screen share. This is a bit from the audience appreciation survey of the web planet. Can you do a dramatic reading of this paragraph? Okay. Thank goodness this particular story is finished, commented a quantity surveyor from the substantial (laughs) number of the sample for whom this episode had scant appeal. It also appeared that many viewers had found this last set of adventures centering around the red planet something of a disappointment, less arresting and entertaining than other Doctor Who stories they'd seen, ridiculous to the point of being ludicrous, silly instead of gripping. It was sometimes maintained, Doctor Who is one of my favourite programmes, but just recently, and especially the last episode, it seemed to become too stupid and I just couldn't get interested. The whole series based on the Zarbies was like a third-rate kiddies pantomime, according to a library assistant. Ooh, library <laughs> assistants. Quite a few of the sample were criticising this particular episode, gave it as their opinion that Doctor Who as a series had deteriorated, lost its entertainment value, and should be rested or scrapped. Plainly, ideas were running out. There we go. A year and a half in, ideas were running out. <laughs> The internet owes Chris Chibnall a massive apology. That's all I'm going to say. So that is our roundup. Anybody have closing thoughts on season two or the Blu-ray or the extras or behind the sofa or the stories? Just got to say, it's always amazing that um, the love and attention Doctor Who gets, but it's never looked as good as this. And that's, for a piece of tv that's nearly 60 years old they scrubbed it up beautifully and it looks amazing and thank you to everyone involved making it look and sound better than it's ever looked and sounded probably even in the 60s um yeah it's great great work here 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 i also enjoyed the um panopticon file which was um the convention panel from april 1985 and i was trying to figure out why wasn't i there i was a doc- i was in the doctor who appreciation society in 1985 but then i realized yeah i was probably work- studying for my o levels at the time i don't think my mum would have let me go <laughs> so um and anyway it seemed oh. to be blokes it seemed to be blokes only in the audience so mm-hmm. i would have stuck out like a very sore thumb but yes it, so it was jacqueline hill and caroline ford and Adrienne Corrie and Michael Craze. And of course, the audio is not brilliant, but it is lovely to hear them talking about the show and their memories. And obviously, Caroline Ford has still got the same line, you know, (laughs) she's still telling the same story in exactly the same way, just with a very bad perm. It was 1985. What can you do? I just wanted to reach out to Jacqueline Hill and say, don't worry, give it another 10 years and everyone will absolutely love you once they've seen your stories. And um, it was such a shame she died so young and she never got to got to see that. And that love that fandom really has for for her and for Barbara now, um, that was such a shame. So it was lovely to hear her see her one appearance 
um, and Adrian Hill is just bonkers. And I loved she her. Is. She was I, amazing. I relate to her big style. She she was so funny and so brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keith, we haven't heard from you. Oh, yes. I adore these box sets. Um, I was a bit disappointed, as I say, by the behind the sewage, which is the principal reason I buy them, to be fair. Um, I'm not sure I'd have probably kept... Um, it's the extras that bring me to them, because the picture quality doesn't really improve, um, because there's so much you could do with the vintage videotape. But uh, I love the extras. I hope they keep doing them. I think now we're, we're halfway through the, the, the series now. I think it's probably guaranteed we'll get as many as we can. It, season three will be interesting because we'll have to work a lot harder for that one. But uh, <laughs> just because it ain't, it, it largely ain't there, is it? I mean, I'm, I kind of think we. I just finished the Savages audio tape today, audio recording today, and you know, it's like nothing there. It's so little. It's such a shame. But um, I think they'd be very, very... Season two for granted because it's just too easy. Whereas season three, you have to really work for. So I think you appreciate it more in the end. (laughs) But uh, no, I hope hope they they finish them. And uh, I think they must be planning to because um, Toby Haydock said they've sort of interviewed people um, ahead for future box sets with the intention of including them just to... Well, to bluntly get them while they're alive, because I suppose a 60 year old show, it's they're knocking on a bit. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it's amazing how many actual Hartnell era regulars are still with us when you look at um, how many and Tom Baker years people we've lost. So, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's breathtaking, really, that half of the original cast are still with us today. The fact that you can get Peter Purvis and Maureen O'Brien and Carol Ann Ford all on screen together for the behind the sofas is something that we will treasure forever. Mm-hmm. So, Cy, I know that you can be found on pretty much a guest host on every Doctor Who podcast ever made, but where can we find you on Twitter <laughs> as a gateway to your multitude of podcast appearances? Um, you can find me. I'm at Cy underscore Hart on Twitter, and you'll find me publicising whichever podcast I'm on this week on there. Um, but I will be um, doing a, an, a series of podcasts for Trap One this year, which I'm looking forward to immensely, where we're going to look at um, all of the anniversaries as um, from the 10th right through to the 50th. Um, and um, sort of have a look at the years and the um, sort of the the big anniversary stories from those years as well. So I've been doing some bits and pieces towards those, which Mark has enjoyed greatly. He's the only person who's heard them so far. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking about all the anniversaries this year. And of course, you're also coming up very soon on Doctor Who Literature and not for the first time. Keith, yep. where can we find you apart from many, many Trap One appearances? I am humbly just on Twitter as 50DW50, which kind of says it's nearly a decade old now, that Twitter account, because uh, <laughs> the 50th anniversaries. And I will also point out that I have yet to hear an episode of the Doctor Who Book Club podcast, which does not have one of your guest emails rounding out the show. Oh. <laughs> You're a popular correspondent there. And Denise, how about you? I am on Twitter. I am at cup of tea 69. I podcast with 
the trap one guys whenever they'll let me in and um i was podcasting with you not too many weeks ago on um, your literature podcast talking about state of decay other than that i have a poetry blog and i'm also on mastodon but not as actively as i should be um so Compared to you guys, I'm an absolute underachiever, but that's where you can find me. Compared to Sai, everybody is an underachiever. <laughs> and thank Bart you Simpson, for joining us. Underachiever and darn proud of it. <laughs> this has been the Trap One Podcast. You can find all past episodes at trap1.podbean.com. You can find us on Twitter at trap1 underscore. You can find Mark on Twitter at corkmcmalice. I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, and of course Doctor Who Literature, which you may have heard me mention a couple of times in the previous 90 minutes. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and have a great night, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>